It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. I mean, I get that, but it's like you said, like, you have to win. And that's what the issue right now is with the with the Democratic Party in this conversation about the candidacy. You have to win. And I can tell you, because presidential campaigns, by and large, are a narrative, and they're a marketing narrative almost more than anything else. I can tell you Bill Clinton was a warrior for the future. George Bush was a warrior for compassionate conservatism. Barack Obama was a warrior for hope. Donald Trump was a warrior for fear. You have to have that thing, that thing everybody understands about you. And it can't be that you're a good executive. Like, that's not anything anybody's going to get excited about. And I have not, if I wish I could figure out the answer. I wish I could understand the way to win by being the most competent person. It doesn't work like that. I don't, because elections aren't hiring process, they're emotional choices people make when they go into the voting booth. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
everyone. Welcome to a new episode of Pants with Politics. We're so excited you are here. We're going to talk about the plethora of news available to us in this current news environment in the first segment of the show. In the main segment, we're going to talk with the beloved Ann Bogle of the podcast, What Should I Read Next? And to close out, we'll share what's on our mind outside of politics. We also want to make sure that we see you in Washington, D.C., because on Friday, January 18th, from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m., we are hosting a live podcast in partnership with Swanee Hunt Alternatives. Swanee and Sarah and I will be in conversation about the seismic shift in gender politics in our country. We'll be talking to women in politics, people who have been elected, people who are working to elect women, people who cover these elections, and we want to talk with you and see you there. We will be in Frederick Douglass Hall at the historic Metropolitan AME Church, which I am so excited about. I think it's going to be an amazing venue. I'm excited about the list of people we're going to be talking with and to connect with many of you in person. If you can't make it on the dot, just come over when you can. We are going to be lifting our spirits ahead of the march the next morning, and I think this is going to be such a great time. I'm so excited. And then Beth's going to be marching. I'm also excited about that. Is this your first march? No, you marching did some. You did it loosely marching. Yeah. <laughs> so we are now, as this podcast is broadcasting on day eighteen of the government shutdown. A little little update, as we all know, the government is shut down because the president wants his five billion dollars for the wall along the U.S. Mexico border. That, as we all recall, Mexico is going to pay for. But now he wants the $5 billion. And recently, he has been threatening to use the powers of um, declaring it a national emergency so that he can use military funds to build the wall. This is legally problematic, constitutionally problematic, to say the least. Right. The president has powers to declare a national emergency, but then he would have to show what the emergency is in Mm -hmm. a court challenge. And I'm not sure that we have an emergency. If we have an emergency, it's becoming an emergency of our own creation. If we have a true emergency in terms of border security and we're not funding the programs that manage border security, that seems to me to be a tempest in a teapot that we made. The reason this is a difficult case to make is because the number of illegal immigrants coming from Mexico into the United States has been steadily dropping for about two decades, despite whatever our national narrative is about that problem. The statistics don't bear out any sort of surge or increasing emergency with regards to specifically illegal immigration from Mexico into the United States. What we do have is a surge in families coming from Central America requesting asylum. So I just think it's a difficult case to make that families coming using a legal process to ask for asylum in the United States is some sort of national emergency. No matter how many times you say they're criminal and terrorist, speaking it doesn't make it true. It just makes it fear mongering. I'm appreciative that some of the press coverage is starting to get to the details of what's going on here. And as that happens, I think you see that what we're watching is professional wrestling. Mm. Because from the administration's standpoint, they know that a physical barrier is not the answer to all of our immigration issues. They know how many of our illegal immigrants in the country are here because they entered legally, not because they crossed illegally, but because they came in legally and then overstayed, right? They know that a physical barrier does not end 
whatever immigration problems America has. And on the flip side, our representatives from the Democratic Party know that there are places where a physical barrier is helpful. It's just that this idea of the wall has taken on a life of its own. And so we're having a conversation in the public eye that is like the wall or not the wall when no one believes that that's what's really going on here. I also think it's important to be realistic and really historically accurate about this this issue of asylum seekers and caravans generally. I heard a really great interview with John Huckins, who's the co-founding director of the Global Immersion Project, which is a peacemaking training organization. He was on Jen Hatmaker's podcast. It was a really fantastic conversation. And he was saying, like, for all of us who work on the border, the caravans are not new. The issues with the caravan are not new. The issues with having enough staff and bureaucracy to process people seeking asylum is not new. Now, the size of the caravan has has increased, the size of the caravans themselves. That's sort of a new development. But this problem, you know, acting like it's a national emergency when it's something we've been dealing with forever, even if we're being accurate about the problem we're facing, which he's not being, but even if the rest of us are having an honest conversation with the problem of the surge in people seeking asylum, people with families from Central America, like, it's not a new emergency. This has been going on for a long time. I'm reading this book right now called Armed Humanitarians by Nathan Hodge. And it is about the transition in the United States military from being a war-fighting institution or set of institutions, more accurately, to social service agencies with machine guns in a lot of instances. Mm. And it's about what we learned in Iraq and Afghanistan and how we have put the lessons that we've learned into practice. And we're still not there in terms of, you know, really getting it right. And I bring this up because whenever I think about what should we do about the surge in asylum seekers, my first instinct is that we need to do more work, essentially nation-building work, in Central America, right? We need to help those countries stabilize. Armed Humanitarians is helping me understand that while there is truth in that and that there is truth in the fact that more stable nations across the world is the answer to peace. It's also true that the United States military in particular is not the right mechanism to move us to more stabilized nations across the world. And so this is a really hard problem that we're not getting to talk about because we're stuck in a stunt that's Mm -hmm. really about what Mm -hmm. the president has promised his base. And that troubles me. And I feel like Mitch McConnell is just sitting this one out because he's been burned by the president so many times. And that is just such an injustice to the American people. And the other thing that is such an injustice, I think, to the American people is that the the main argument being advanced right now for getting us out of this shutdown is, well, we don't want to delay people's tax refunds. And I I don't want to delay people's tax refunds either, and I don't want to take anything away from the importance of that process. I very strongly believe in tax refunds and how big a deal it is to make sure that we get that part of our contribution to citizens' right. But gosh, it troubles me that we're saying, let's get these tax refunds out the door instead of let's talk about the TSA workers and the federal workers who are either Mm -hmm. being asked to show up every day without any indication of when they're going to get paid again. I mean, you read news stories that say this could go on for months and the people who would love to be going to work every day and can't. 
we're creating so many layers of problems here. And I just think it's kind of gross that we have to find a how can this help me right now angle to get people to put pressure on lawmakers to end it. The grossest part to me is that at every turn, there has been the manipulation of government shutdowns to minimize the political impact with almost no concern with the real world impact of the shutdown. So what I mean is, well, during past government shutdowns, the shutting down of the national parks created a huge amount of political pressure because people don't like it when the national parks are shut down. So this time they were very careful, despite the advice of the National Park Service, because our national parks are beautiful, but they are wild and they are dangerous. And despite the advice of we, if there are not going to be rangers available, if there are not going to be safety mechanisms in place, the, the national park system should not remain open. They kept it open anyway so that they could keep the political pressure off with regards to the National Park Service. We have a partial shutdown so that we can ease the political pressure of what it would mean to have a total government shutdown. Look, if you're going stop using this as a political stunt and in every possible point using the levers of government to release this, the pressure so that this, the American people can ignore the real world impact of their votes and their representatives and their representatives' choices. That's what really bugs me about it. And I feel like we do this over and over in America. It's what, something we talk about with 9-11. It's something we talk about with our foreign policy. We want to be able to ignore it. And look, I get it. Beth and I had a conversation with our first recording after the new year that it felt really good and it was exceptionally easy over the holiday break to check out. It was, and I did it. I checked out. I knew the government was shut down. I read a little bit of news every morning. It wasn't affecting me and I moved on and I ignored it. I'm just going to be really honest. And I know it's so easy to do this because it's anxiety producing. You feel powerless. What am I going to do about the government shutdown? But we can't check out and we can't ignore it and we can't allow them to manipulate the process in such a way that because it doesn't affect our day-to-day -day lives, we think it doesn't affect our day-to-day -day lives <laughs> because it does. It does. There are long-term repercussions of these decisions and a government shutdown that lasts for months is unacceptable. We should all be calling our representatives and saying this is unacceptable. And that's true, even if it had no effect on our day-to-day -day lives. I'm really working in myself on getting out of how does this affect me and more into how does this affect all of us? Because mm -hmm. it ultimately does in this larger context. If we live in a country that just shuts its government down because of a political fight, and it's no big deal. Even if that absolutely never touches my life directly. It doesn't delay my tax return. It doesn't keep me from visiting a national park if I want to. If it has no impact on me and my family directly whatsoever, it's still unacceptable. It's still unacceptable to be governed this way, to be this cynical about our politics, to be this manipulative of our voting public. This is just not right. I want us to have the capacity to get out of your personal tax return could be late, so now you're motivated, and into... Mm -hmm. Everybody, is this good enough for us? This is not good enough. I just think the question is, why is there an us? What are we doing here together if this is how it's going to function? Mm -hmm. Why are we have a government to begin with? What are we doing? What are we doing? What is the point? 
What is the point of us all living together as the United States of America if this is how it's going to go? I I don't know sometimes. I really don't. If you're a new listener, Sarah's inclination is not toward anarchy. (laughs) (laughs) That is not what we're talking about here. But But it is like we have to have a larger social fabric than the one that we have right now. And I just I think this is a really sad commentary on where we are. I'm Sarah from the left, obviously, and we've had quite a few developments in the Democratic Party leadership. I guess that's what I'll classify it as. First of all, we have had Elizabeth Warren officially declare her candidacy for the 2020 presidential election. So that's exciting. We're going to play a little bit of sound from her announcement speech right now. In our country, if you work hard and play by the rules, you ought to be able to take care of yourself and the people you love. That's a fundamental promise of America, a promise that should be true for everyone. Growing up in Oklahoma, that promise came through for me and my family. After my older brothers joined the military and I was still just a kid, my daddy had a heart attack and couldn't work. My mom found a minimum wage job at Sears, and that job saved our house and our family. My daddy ended up as a janitor, but he raised a daughter who got to be a public school teacher, a law professor, and a senator. We got a real opportunity to build something. Working families today face a lot tougher path than my family did. And families of color face a path that is steeper and rockier, a path made even harder by the impact of generations of discrimination. I've spent my career getting to the bottom of why America's promise works for some families, but others who work just as hard slip through the cracks into disaster. And what I've found is terrifying. These aren't cracks that families... So I just want to say, when I used to teach Introduction to Business Law, I would share a couple of her congressional speeches and congressional hearings from the creation of the Consumer Protection Agency. And I would always tell my class, I mean, I was probably telling them this in maybe like 2010, 2011. I said, mark my words, she'll run for president one day, and I think she'll probably win. I think she is so good on – she is not perfect. She's not made every perfect decision with regards to her candidacy. But I don't think there are many people as good as Elizabeth Warren on speaking with both emotion and expertise on the growing gap between the rich and the poor in this country. I just don't. Yeah, I think Elizabeth Warren is intelligent. I think she is a true believer in what she says. I don't feel cynical about her motivations at all. I think she believes what she's talking about. I think she is a warrior on income inequality. And I think that, you know, from my perspective, her voice in the Senate has been a powerful one as to that issue and has a place there. I I disagree with her on most of the solutions around that problem, but I don't disagree with her that that problem exists. And I and I think that she's a powerful force in the Senate. The only thing that I have to say that's critical at this point is that I I do not like in the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez world, the sort of divisiveness around I, I think we're taking a, a gap right that that does exist and turning it into a really existential kind of battle between the wealthy and the non-wealthy and I think in America it is still harder to define what wealth means than that I don't think it is as as pure of a 
existential conflict as some of that language makes it out to be. And so I wish for a more robust discussion than that. And I know that Elizabeth Warren is capable of that robust discussion. I know she has the expertise to have it. So I hope she gets the opportunity to talk about that instead of just talking about her DNA and her tone of voice and all the things that media loves to write about when women run for president. I don't know if I would have articulated it until you said that, but I am absolutely looking for a president who's a warrior on income inequality because I feel like it is the, it's like Pavlov's hierarchy of needs until we can address this in a real and sustainable way in the United States. There, it will be so difficult to address all the other incredible problems we have healthcare, childcare, foreign policy. I think that. Until we can get our heads around that this gap is the problem, that this gap in the way that we use the government to really shrink it in the 50s and 60s brought about all these developments and growth that people look back, certain generations look back at so fondly. I mean, I think that there, that so much of that had to do with using the government to address income inequality, regional, which trickled out into regional inequality. I read a really great article I'll link to in the show notes called Bloom and Bust about how the federal government used its power to um, prevent monopolies, to prevent regional monopolies, to prevent regional inequality. You had you had some percentage of earning capacity difference between places like Detroit and New York City, but you did not have 60 percent, 40 percent greater earning capacities in parts of the United States as opposed to others. And, you know, I think that it is the just the foundational problem affecting us right now. And I think that that's why Bernie Sanders struck such a nerve. I think that's why Donald Trump st- struck such a nerve. I think that it's not because he was speaking in any real way to income inequality, but he was using fear, fear of being left behind because of income inequality to stoke his campaign to further his momentum. And I think they were both speaking to similar concerns because I, I I think they're real. I think we have a massive problem with in- income inequality in this country. And I think a candidacy that doesn't see that as the, the North Star will never find that sort of real passionate momentum that you saw with Bernie Sanders' campaign, that you saw with even maybe to a certain extent Barack Obama's campaign. with Donald Trump's campaign, definitely with Bill Clinton's campaign. And, you know, I think that it's just essential. And I think she's so good at it. And I I hope that even if she's not the candidate, that what happens with her candidacy is that people see in the way that they hopefully took the lesson from Bernie Sanders' campaign. This is sort of the, the passion and the power of a candidacy that speaks to this issue. I don't want a presidential candidate that's a warrior on anything, because I think what we have seen, especially in the Trump presidency, is that when a president is a warrior on a particular topic, what we get is an executive branch that exceeds the scope of what the executive branch is there to do. I want a president who's good at personnel. I want a president who who actually does find the best people and supports those people and makes sure that those people do right by all of the people who work under them in the executive branch. I want a president who can bring the disparate constituencies in Congress to the table to hammer something out. 
Clintonian in that way, right? Someone more like Bill Clinton in terms of that skill set. I want a president who is a thoughtful representative of the United States in the world and a very strong commander in chief who has a philosophy about the kind of foreign policy issues we were discussing in our immigration conversation just a second ago. I I have the utmost respect for Elizabeth Warren's life's work. But this is not a comment unique to Elizabeth Warren, especially post-Donald Trump. I have realized that I am looking for a really strong executive, not someone who has a passionate, emotionally driven message on any specific front. And I recognize that the things that I want, it's a lonely place for me in the world, right? Because that is not the kind of thing that wins elections. And I get it. But that's what's really important to me at this point. I do not want someone who thinks, and this I think is a good transition to the Bernie Sanders campaign conversation. I don't want anybody who thinks that one particular cause is bigger than everything else and worth whatever trade-offs you have to go through to get to their desired outcome on that specific cause, which I think is a lot of what was going on in Bernie Sanders' world. I mean, I get that, but it's like you said, like, you have to win. And that's what the issue right now is with with the Democratic Party in this conversation about the candidacy. You have to win. And I can tell you, because presidential campaigns, by and large, are a narrative, and they're a marketing narrative almost more than anything else. I can tell you, Bill Clinton was a warrior for the future. George Bush was a warrior for compassionate conservatism. Barack Obama was a warrior for hope. Donald Trump was a warrior for fear. You have to have that thing, that thing everybody understands about you. And it can't be that you're a good executive. Like, that's not anything anybody's going to get excited about. And I have not, if, I wish I could figure out the answer. I wish I could understand the way to win by being the most competent person, it doesn't work like that. I don't it, because elections aren't hiring process. They're emotional choices people make when they go into the voting booth. But hope and the future and compassionate conservatism are bigger umbrellas than one specific policy narrative. I don't ever again want to be in a situation like we're in with the shutdown right now where the president says, well, my campaign was about protecting America from illegal immigration. That is our reason for being. And so there is no compromise on this issue. I, that's that is a terrible place to be in. Now, I think Elizabeth Warren is more mature and and has more respect for our institutions than to put us through something like this over inequality. At least I hope so. What I'm saying is I, I don't want the animating feature of one of these campaigns to be so narrow because I think that is a recipe for disaster. That's what I disagree. I don't think it's narrow. I don't think it's a policy position. I think it's the founding principle of this country that everybody gets an equal shake. And right now the system is set up in such a way that people don't. I think there are times in our history when we've been closer. But like, I think that that, to me, it's not a narrow policy position. To me, it's the guiding light of this country, which is, you know, all men are created equal and that we should have equal opportunity. And we don't. We don't have anywhere close to that right now. And to me that that like it's not a it's not a single bill we're going to put before Congress. It's a lot of different policy positions. And I think there's a lot of room within those policy positions for different sort of a spectrum of beliefs. Right. But I do think that I don't I see that as I see income inequality as much larger than a single policy position. To me, it is a it's a value. It's a it's a fundamental principle and value of this country. And that's what I want to hear from a candidacy. I want to hear a candidate speak 
to that this is what this country has always been about and we have lost it. We've lost it. It's not there anymore. And we have to figure out how to get back to there. So, to, I mean, to me, it's it's much bigger than that. Yeah, I disagree about that. And that's a long conversation that we could have. I mean, I, I will say right now, because I know people don't like it when we disagree and leave it hanging. I will say right now that I just I don't disagree that we have a problem around income inequality in this country. I disagree that the federal government has the answer to that problem. I think it has some answers. I think there are probably some spaces for agreement with Elizabeth Warren. Like, I believe the Federal Trade Commission needs to be more active. I believe that we have allowed mergers and acquisitions to go too far and that we need to rein that in, right? I think there are there are spaces and policy proposals where the federal government can be helpful. I do not agree that the country has completely lost all opportunity for folks. And I don't agree that policies are the way to restore a sense that everyone should get an equal shake, because I think that what is freely given to us from one another actually advances that cause. And I think the way to get us to freely give to one another in that way, to give greater opportunities, to pay more local taxes so we have better Head Start programs and things like that, is for people in communities to be really connected to those problems and to decide that in our communities we need to solve those problems. But we need to talk about Bernie Sanders and get to Ann Bogle. So, Sarah, what has been your reaction to the news of fairly widespread sexual harassment going unaddressed within the Sanders campaign? Complete and total lack of surprise. Would you like to say more about that? (laughs) I'm just not surprised. I interacted with these people. I think that Bernie Sanders himself has problematic views and ideologies about sexual harassment and sexism generally, not because I think that he is purposely doesn't care. I just think he has blind spots. It's not surprising to me at all, much because of what you said. I think that there it, there becomes this sort of burning passion and flame. And so everything must, you know, all ends justify the means. And if you... It's not it happens in a lot of liberal causes. It has happened in a lot of liberal causes throughout history and the civil rights movement and sort of the unions. I mean, it's it's not surprising. People think that certain types of equality are more important than others. And not surprisingly, often the ones that are less important involve women. So, again, knock me over with a feather. There was massive sexual harassment and sexism in the Bernie Sanders campaign. What I want to add to that is that. If you are out in the media saying things like, well, the campaign just grew so fast that we lost control and we, you know, we we weren't as good on human resources as we should have been. I think that that means ultimately you can't handle the responsibilities of being the president, because in any environment, if someone comes to you and says other people are wielding power over me in a way that makes me uncomfortable. If you don't know that you stop everything right then and address that problem, you don't have the right skill set to do this job. You just don't. And if you can't surround yourself with people who know that that's how you lead, it doesn't take that long to deal with issues like this if you have set up a good culture and if you have the right people in leadership. And I just think it is a totally bogus excuse to say, well, it just got so big and you're going a thousand miles an hour and we were really committed to what we were doing. And oops, we hate that this happened. That's not good enough. You don't have the skill set to do this on a bigger level then. Great. Go be a senator. Keep giving your talks. Do do your thing. Don't run for president again. 
I totally agree. Before we move on to Ann Bogle, we always compliment the other side of the aisle. And today I would like to compliment Speaker Pelosi and House Democrats who are working on a package for natural disasters. Even in the midst of the shutdown, they're talking about a $12.1 billion aid package to help rebuild California. It will provide some relief to Florida, Georgia, and Alabama from hurricanes. I understand that the Democrats' proposal of passing individual spending packages to reopen parts of the government and kind of delaying the DHS portion is not going anywhere with Republicans, but Natural disaster relief for me is a good place to try. If you're going to go out on a limb, going out on a limb to help Americans who've been impacted by natural disaster seems like the right place to me. And so I'm glad that they're doing this work and fighting the good fight on helping our fellow citizens, even if it isn't going to get through the Senate. I would like to compliment somebody, and I can't say with 100% certainty that he is the responsible party, but because I am not privy to the conversations of the inner sanctum of the Trump administration, I'm going to go ahead and say that this is the person I want to compliment because I don't know if there's somebody else responsible. But I want to compliment John Bolton, our national security advisor, because somebody, and maybe it's him, maybe it's somebody else, has clearly talked Trump back from this super absurd pull out of Syria in 30 days. And so now they've not surprisingly shifted the policy to now, well, it's it was going to be four months. And then now it's we, we won't pull out until these certain conditions have been met. Bolton is the one that has, has sort of put out the conditions and said, we're not going to leave until the conditions have been met. So somebody walked him back from the edge on this after we lost our very good secretary of defense over it. That's neither here nor there. So if it was him, good job, John Bolton. If it was some other unnamed source who, who've talked him out of this really terrible position, uh, I'll compliment that person as well. Can I say one quick thing about that? I was having a conversation with a friend last week about how the unfortunate part of Trump's announcement on Syria is that we've had this bipartisan reaction that almost leads to the impression that serious people could never contemplate our troops leaving Syria. And I don't want to leave the impression that that's what either of us think. Mm-hmm. I don't think that is what either of us think. I think that it is, well, for me, I don't have confidence in this administration to thoughtfully change any of our military commitments in terms of increasing or decreasing troop presences. That's a sad place to be. But when I'm really honest with myself, that's how I feel about it. However, in the long term, yes, I would love thoughtful, responsible exit strategies from many of our troop commitments in Syria and throughout the world, because I'm not sure what the end game is. And that's part of the reason I've dived into this book about our peacekeeping, nation building kind of presences, because I really want to better understand how we got here and how we get out of it. It's just that I don't have confidence that the president has a call with the president of Turkey and suddenly decides that we're going to leave Syria. That, to me, is the problem. It's not that I want to engage in perpetual war throughout the globe. Next up, we are going to be sharing part one of our conversation with Anne. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, 
and very smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked to me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops. Premium luggage options and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt. In Japan, they like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. Vogel. going to move on now to our main segment where we will be sharing our conversation with Ann Bogle. Ann Bogle is the creator of the popular blog, Martyr Mrs. Darcy, which I've been reading for, I think, I think a solid decade. Known by readers, authors, and publishers as a tastemaker through her popular book list and reading guides, books are the foundation of her site, which has been affectionately dubbed a lifestyle blog for nerds. Anne considers that high praise. She lives in Louisville with her husband and four kids, Yellow Lab, and 2,000 of her favorite books. So here is our conversation with Ann Bogle. We're live from Cincinnati's first annual podcast festival. And we're talking with our good friend, Ann Bogle, about how to know and be the nicest people on the internet. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. 
Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of Pantsuit Politics with our dear friend, Ann Bogle, who hosts What Should I Read Next podcast. She is the creator of Modern Mrs. Darcy and the author of two books, I'd Rather Be Reading, The Delights and Dilemmas of the Reading Life, and Reading People. We're so glad that you're here, Ann. It's a pleasure. We're so excited. And we realized as we were preparing for this very special episode and talking about all the things that we might discuss as a trio and with you, our audience, that we happen to know the nicest people on the internet. Mm -hmm. We believe firmly that the nicest people on the internet listen to our shows and interact with them. And we were thinking about why that is and felt that could be a good conversation because listen, no matter what's going on in the news or what's going on in the reading world, the comment sections can be scary. The internet is a flame, surely y'all know that. At any point in time, it is burning. So, Anne, tell people who aren't familiar with your kind of ecosystem about your readers and about the people who comment and like and interact with you online and why they are so lovely. Ooh. Well, we would like to say that Modern Mrs. Darcy is one of the few places left on the internet where it is actually safe to read the comment section. <laughs> Let your children read the comment section either. Let's not get carried away. <laughs> It is still the internet. But most days I think that's safe. And we have people who listen to our show with their children, which is nothing I anticipated, but lots mm -hmm. of fun. But I think someone told me a long time ago when I started blogging, in dog years, I think this was like 175 years mm -hmm. ago, mm -hmm. that uh, your blog is your living room. And I feel the same way about the podcast. And you get to choose like what the tone is in your house and what you serve and where you put the furniture and how people are going to interact. You make your house rules. And I think most days it feels like a safe space. I mean, I posted about politics this week. And you nobody did, died and or emailed me. You didn't get emails. a single email? That's shocking. No, I didn't say I didn't get a single email. I didn't get a single rude email. Oh, okay. And I get rude emails about the goldfinch like three times a week. So that's really <laughs> saying something. So let, that's, a good, that's a good intro. So not surprisingly, we talk about a contentious subject, politics, in which people have incredibly strong opinions. There's a lot of emotion and identity. And so it is a, a fertile breeding ground for meanness, especially in our current political environment. But I don't think a lot of people would be, I think a lot of people would be surprised to hear that you, there is a similar level of intensity in the book world. Well, there's still people <laughs> talking about these books. Yes, I think, well, politics is so wrapped up with identity for so many people, and reading is as well, mm -hmm. although for the most part, it's easier for people to untether who they are from what they read, even if they think books are part of who they are. Mm -hmm. But then you put it on social media, and you all talk about taking off your jerseys. Um, you know, on Bookstagram, do we all know what this is? Instagram plus books. Bookstagram. Also creatively named Book Twitter. <laughs> people are still people. And I think you see the same, um, really, people uh, stating strong opinions, following party lines, um, used with heavy air quotes. But, I mean, th those exist in the book world as well. Um, parroting people they follow. Um, not political party leaders, but thought leaders, um, just without really processing or without really thinking about it. And so even though you're talking about maybe, oh man, you all, I had a podcast guest on last week. We talked about organizing your bookshelves in rainbow etical order. If you do want to get nasty comments on Instagram, that is what you should be talking about. 
Forget these midterms. Oh my god. Kind of intense. I but, mean, I totally understand that. Let me say, I could take off my Democratic jersey much easier than I could take off my Harry Potter jersey. <laughs> much, much easier. Well, something we talk about all the time is just social media lends itself to walking around the world and perceiving everything as something that you are either excited about or is a thumbs down for you. Mm -hmm. Like it just provokes this yay or boo reaction about everything. Yeah, what I think you get is the knee-jerk reaction without any time to process it. You just say what you think, which is usually, how could you ever, I don't understand, but you say that before you have the chance to try to imagine how you could or mm -hmm. attempt to understand. Well, and I think that's why podcasting is, at least gives people a running start at checking that impulse. Because when you're, you have to- Because <laughs> you're driving. Yeah, you're driving. That's the first reason, <laughs> totally. You're driving, you're moving, you're listening, you're doing something. You can't just, I'm reading something, oh, how convenient, I have some very strong opinions at the ending of this article, and here's the comment section. Perfect. <laughs> um, so I think that you have, to, you have to listen to the end sometimes. Um, I have definitely gotten emails from people who are like, you did not listen to the end. That's cool. Um, but you have to listen to the end, and we, have so, we get so many emails from people where they'll say, okay, I listened, and at the end I was really mad, but then I like slept on it, and then I woke up the next day and I thought about some more. And I don't think that's what you meant. And I, but I don't, I don't know if that comes from what we illustrate as what we try to do or if they just, the podcasting, the medium themselves gave them a, enough of a moment to just take a breath and say, not, to say, say something besides yay or boo. We get people sometimes who say, and then I listened again, yeah. and I heard it differently the second time. Is that something that happens with your content, and do you feel like your people are that critical and analytical about what they're listening to? Like, if they have a yay or boo reaction, do you think they think, oh, I'm going to go back and ponder this some more before I engage? I do hear that people have very uh, fervent conversations in their car by themselves, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, either talking mm -hmm. to me on their podcast player or um, to their empty passenger seat. Uh, I think people are just people though. Like I do get, e look, we started by saying we know the nicest people on the internet. Now we're talking about how people can be not nice, but you know, <laughs> that, so it goes. Um, I get emails, fervent emails about rainbow ethical order and, or about how they don't like my hair in that photo. Cause that happens too, because <laughs> we're women on the internet. But, but if I send a gracious response, usually I just hit delete, but if I send a gracious response, I can't tell you what percentage of the time, it's probably like 70, I get an email back that said, I was so mad about something that didn't have to do with you and I should not have sent that email. Oh. Or I was so tired, or I was so hungry. So like they say that you shouldn't like text while driving, yeah. like you should not email while hungry. No, this you is a thing. Not. That's a good rule. That is yeah. a good rule. So Anne, you talked about how when you started your blog, your intention was to treat it like your living room and lay kind of the foundation for how you expected people to pave. Can you talk a little bit about how you did that and how people have responded? All right, who's a personality geek? I can't actually see anything in these lights. Sarah, <laughs> Sorry, 100%. podcast yes. listeners, you're missing the full effect. Lisa's hands are up. <laughs> uh, that's a great question. Um, okay, well, being an Enneagram 9, so now it's like we're in therapy together, basically. Um, I, I just, was all ready to talk about the Enneagram before we even got here, so I'm in. Beat you to it, Sarah. <laughs> I think, naturally, I've I've always had an ear for, like, the, wow, let's just mix our metaphors thoroughly. Hmm. 
I've always been interested in seeing the other points of view and like been very aware that there are multiple sides to any situation, whether you're talking about how you're going to vote in the election or how you could possibly be okay with the movie version of Gone Girl. Like, <laughs> I can see it both ways. And it's something I've always tried to do on my blog is to point out to people, um, well, I think a lot has to do with the subject matter. Like, let's talk about very familiar issues, timeless issues, but with a fresh perspective where we just rotate it a few degrees, like turn it a few knobs, so you can see it from a fresh perspective. And I think that um, catching people off guard is a little strong, but I do want to come at them in a way that makes them stop and go, huh. Whether we're talking about, I don't know, what kind of necklace to wear with your jeans? Once, once a quarter. Once a quarter, we'll go that direction. <laughs> or why maybe it's okay to, uh, I don't know, read the Anna Green Gables series three times in a week as an adult. Like maybe that doesn't actually mean that you have. Means you're a great person. Exactly, exactly. It can still mean you're a great person. Let's mm -hmm. consider the possibility at least. And I think that when you're coming with the perspective of like, hey, let's think about this. Many people are generally like, they're willing to go along with it. Oh, are, are we thinking? Okay, let's okay, do Is that this. what we're doing here? Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. We're not just reacting, we're thinking, okay, all right. Yeah, yeah. I'm really impressed that you have that instinct. I don't, which is really great that Beth is always on the podcast with me because she has that act, that instinct in a very strong way. I'm always like, no, this, I'm a one on the Enneagram for any Enneagram people out there. So I'm like, well, there's a right. Thank, thank you. Uh -huh. There's a right. Only a, a one would do that too. Yeah, that's, like, right. Right. that's the one that you're supposed <laughs> yeah. to be. Uh -huh. And I'm like, well, there's a right way and a wrong way. We can talk about all the different ways in which this is right and this is wrong. That's the most, the most fun conversation I can imagine. Um, but then Beth is like, oh, but what if we did it a different way? What if we asked some questions and thought about it and we're just going to examine both sides in a very non-committal way? And I'm like, well, see, right, right. this is why you all are interesting to listen to. Because if Beth and I had a podcast, <laughs> it would be amazing. You could listen to it before bed. You'd feel very calm you before you drifted off to sleep. Good night with Anna and Beth. We get some meditation. <laughs> <laughs> and that podcast already has 500 subscribers. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Without it even existing yet. Well, no, Anne, when you were saying um, that it's good to surprise people sometimes, I was thinking, as a non-angry Republican voice, I relate very strongly. Mm -hmm. to that. I feel like a lot of what initially drew people into our show was that, huh, I don't recognize a Republican who's not yelling. And I think that's been helpful. As I was thinking about commonality between what you do and what we do, I do think that uh, a lot of the reason that our people are the nicest people on the internet is because none of us are asking our listeners to agree with us about everything. Mm -hmm. We are inviting them into a conversation. I mean, I would like that. But right. Yes. Sarah approves very strongly if you agree yes. <laughs> her on everything. I enjoy it. But that. your show, too. I mean, you ask people intentionally, tell me about books you enjoy, tell me about books you don't enjoy. That's okay. And now I want to help you find books that are for you. And we're saying, let's talk about the facts of what happened here. I'm going to give you my perspective. Sarah's going to give you her perspective. Now, what do you think? Mm -hmm. And I feel like our shows are more an invitation, and that's a different way of being on the internet. Yes, and it's what makes it interesting. Mm -hmm. So if you all, all agreed all the time, you'd have 1984. Mm -hmm. And if everybody on What Should I Read Next agreed, it would be like the worst book club where you go and you sit around the room and everybody goes, I liked it. Oh, I liked it too. <laughs> 
I did too. Oh man, I hate those book clubs. Pass the wine. Yeah. yeah. Because on my show every week, a reader tells me three books they love, one book they don't, and what they're reading now, and I recommend three books they should read next. And I love to hear readers, I think we all love to hear people talk about the things they love, the things they're really passionate about. And when they do, um, sometimes they can be really eloquent talking about a book that changed them or that really impacted the journey of their life. Um, but sometimes we can just get really sentimental and say like, oh, I don't know why it means so much to me. It just did because my grandmother gave it to me or something like that, which is great, but it's not the same as listening to somebody break down a book they don't like. Because before they come on the show, they're not allowed, you're not allowed to not like Fifty Shades or Twilight or, you know. Is the fountain on that not, list? I feel like it should be. A list of like people have definitely disliked the fountain. Yeah, you should eliminate that. But one. that can be more interesting. I mean, mm -hmm. just because like a lot of people are uncomfortable talking about what they like or what makes them uncomfortable, and so they see that as the low hanging fruit because oh, lots of people don't like that. So right. I'll just say like I don't like that because nobody likes it because it's not good. Well, yeah. it's not good is not interesting. But really, getting into why a certain work of art did I just call Twilight art? Mm. Let's, well, okay. let's pretend you were talking about the fountain. I was trying to we'll not be, say Because I will begrudgingly call it art, but I When you like hear that. somebody talk about why something was not for them, you have two conversations going on. Like, well, what's it like? Why is that not for you? Do you still think it's interesting and valid? Mm -hmm. Who might it be for? I mean, people can be very thoughtful and articulate about things they don't like. And I think what what's a little bit easier much of the time with books and reading is that it's very clear the difference between the person and the work. Right. But it's not necessarily that way in politics. Mm -hmm. I was thinking people cannot be nice in politics about what they don't like, unfortunately. But I think they that can. that's starting to they happen. Can. I mean, they can. They can. Yeah. They're just not right I mean, we hear that from people. Like, I, I get lots of nice emails that say, I just totally disagree with you on everything policy-wise, but you're, you're lovely. <laughs> and I think, well, good. Like, that is a big step forward. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a big step forward to be able to separate the person from the policy. Or even to say, I get for the first time why you feel this way about the policy. I still disagree, but now I get it. Okay, well now we've got some room to problem solve here. And that's what's been missing, I think, politically. We don't have any room to problem solve. EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra-concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. EarthBreeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earthbreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, 
get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. We hope you guys enjoyed part one of our conversation with Anne. We're going to be sharing the rest on Friday. But to wrap up the show, we will end how we always end. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? And seeing movies. We are going to talk about Vice after you've seen it. I have probably 90 minutes worth of things to say about Vice. So we'll talk about that another time. But We're going to do a bonus episode. We're going to do our Patreon bonus episode on Vice this month. Yes, I have lots to say about Vice. But we also saw Mary Poppins, and I posted this on our social media. Mary Poppins, as I really start to think about it, has influenced me more than any other character ever has, possibly more than any real human being. And so, yes. And I was so... How come? Did you watch it on repeat? Yes. I watched it over and over and over again growing up. Okay. I mean, you talk about how you watch a lot of movies because you were an only child. I was until my sister was born when I was almost 12, right? So I watched a lot of television by myself in my room and musicals were my thing. And Mary Poppins was maybe at the top of that list and just... She was always like, I thought, this is a person that I want to be like. So I was so happy that I loved Mary Poppins Returns. I was nervous about it, and I was thrilled that it was just a delight. I cried like five times, which you know is not me. But as soon as she came down from the sky the first time, I think because they so respected the original, it just like pulled on my heart in a way that I did not expect at all. It was wonderful. My kids went to see it, and you would think I would have been, like, all in, especially because Lin-Manuel Miranda's in it, and I believe firmly he is the best humanity has to offer. But the reviews were not awesome, and so it kind of took the wind out of my sails, and I stayed home and finished a book. That's what I've been doing. I've been reading a lot of books. I've been reading Milkman, which I believe is the Man Booker Award winner for last year. It's a fascinating sort of stream-of-consciousness novel about this young girl being stalked in Northern Ireland. 
I finished Transcription by Kate Atkinson, which is a book about a British spy during World War II. And then I just finished the last of the Crazy Rich Asians trilogy. We've also watched a couple of movies. We watched Black Klansman, which I really, really liked. And I went and saw Mary Queen of Scots. So my my break was also full of pop culture. Oh, and most importantly, I binged watched Tidying Up with Marie Kondo on New Year's Day. Have you watched any of the episodes yet? No. How are you feeling about them? It's so good. It's so good. This is all you need to know about. First of all, oh, so many things to say. Okay. First of all, in the very first episode, she comes to this house with two toddlers and the little girl like immediately reaches for Marie Kondo and puts her head in her shoulder. That tells you all you need to know about this woman's energy. Walks into this toddler's room for the first time and she's like, oh, hi, calm lady. Will you hold me? She's amazing. The show's amazing. It's really great because it's basically like she comes, she gives you the tools, she checks in. But it's these these families doing the work over like 30 to 40 days. It's not Marie Kondo comes in and cleans up your house. It's Marie Kondo comes in, talks you through the emotions of your stuff, gives you the emotional tools to work through your stuff. And then each show is sort of another psychological journey, be it a, um, a spouse that's passed away or a marriage with young kids or empty nesters, all these different things, and really talking about these emotional lies we tell ourselves about our stuff and how we can work through that. I mean, they're, they're, they're psychological journeys. They are not—this is not HGTV in any stretch of the imagination, which is why I think Marie Kondo is such an incredible cultural powerhouse, because that's what we need. Our stuff is an emotional attachment. It's a lot of— psychological narratives we tell ourselves and so she's really helping people confront these for the first time in real ways and realizing just the burden the spiritual psychological emotional burden all this stuff places on our shoulders it's i mean it's so good it's so good i love her i want to hang out with her also notice that she wears the exact same thing every time which became a real delight to sort of workout in that she has like a uniform. She wears black tights, black flats, a very colorful skirt, and usually a white top off in a sweater. And it was like so fun. We, we, My friend and I would get so excited. We'd be like, oh my God, it's a new skirt we haven't seen yet. But I just, I adore her. I think she is what we all need in our lives. I cannot recommend it highly enough. See, I believe that you like Marie Kondo for the same reasons that I like Mary Poppins. She's calm. She's disciplined. She's hella serious, but also totally whimsical, right? Like there's this whole mm-hmm, string of joy mm-hmm. throughout everything she says, but you're going to fold this stuff right. I mean, I just think that both of them have that combination of seriousness and a true connection to the best that we can be as people and the the importance of imagination. And that, and that produces this really calm, wonderful energy that you just want to be around. But listen, the ama- the amazing thing here is that somebody was able to write and create the person they wanted Mary Poppins to be. Marie Kondo's a real person, man. Like, that's what's so amazing about her is that she she did this on her own. I mean, when you read her first book, especially if you're a person who likes organization, it's just so brilliant how she kind of – she just takes apart all these – the traditional advice about organization – why it's also busted. It's almost like she was like an organizing savant. Like, I think she just started so soon. So she is also is clearly very smart. And so was able to kind of work through all that stuff at a very early age. I mean, she's not very old. I only think she's in her mid-30s. She's also, I found out, T-tiny. She's only four foot eight. So it's really funny to see her next to some of the people in the show. But no, I totally, I totally agree. I mean, she has this very, if only she could burst into song and or fly off 
into a cartoon wonderland. I would definitely watch that. But she has this very great whimsical mix of imagination and creativity, but also like real, you know, spiritual connection, like a real sort of I'm here, I'm listening. I'm both sturdy and whimsical at the same time. And both of those stories, ultimately, what Marie Kondo is doing in real life and what Mary Poppins taught the Banks family twice now. (laughs) Your material stuff gets in the way of your imagination and spirituality and connection to other human beings. Stop it. So true. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Fancy Politics. We will be back with you on Friday with part two of Ann Bogle and more news during the week between now and then. If you are on Patreon, make sure you check out the Nightly Nuance, where Monday through Thursday we'll bring you lots of good stuff. This week we're going to be talking about Saudi Arabia some, and it's going to be very exciting. So hope to see you there. Until next Friday, keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsu Politics every week. And thanks for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our production assistant, which means we could not live without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsu Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash Politics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband Nicholas Holland, and my husband Chad Silvers. Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at PantsuPoliticsShow.com. And connect with us and members of the Pantsu Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.